more common in the Christian religion than the concept, Christ died to save sinners. I think that's the slogan that we've heard from the time of our childhood. We've seen it painted on the roofs of barns, on the sides of buses, on bumper stickers, on church marquees. We've seen it in newspapers. We've had it handed out to us in little paper tracts on the busy street corners of large cities. We've seen it in newspaper advertisements. We've seen it in booklets. We've heard Dr. Billy Graham say it. Christ died to save sinners. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. I'd like to expound that a little bit. Many years ago, I wrote a book called The Real Jesus. And I did so because as I looked into the Christian religion and began to study some of the mainstream concepts of this person that is hated by all of Islam, that is hated by all of Orthodox Jewry, that is rejected by the other monotheistic religions who share the holy places in the city of Jerusalem, the three great monotheistic religions being Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And remember, too, that the great Oriental religions are in the majority, and Christianity is in the minority of the great religions of the world, but certainly the concept of Christ and the Christ who died on the cross, the Christ who died to save sinners, the Christ who shed his blood and gave his body to the whip, who died because people have been lost in sin, is fundamental to the Christian religion. When Dr. Billy Graham is talking to people about drugs and child abuse and divorce and desertion, abandonment of crime, of wretched familial or family situations, of people suffering and dying with disease, of the wretched conditions of our world today, he continually talks about Christ. He says, come to Christ. He said, receive Christ, accept Christ, believe on Christ. Is anything more common than that? It is understood by Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalians, Foursquare and Full Gospel, Pentecostal, Church of Reorganized Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, Seventh-day Adventist Catholics, and everybody else in between. Come to Christ. Accept Christ. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Which Christ? Which Jesus? I read in the Word of God about a person named Jesus Christ, and in that book I researched the four Gospels all of the prophecies that pertain to him from the beginning chapters of Genesis of the prophecy that the woman would eventually bruise the serpent under her heel to the prophecies of Isaiah, the 52nd and 3rd chapters of how he, like a dumb lamb, led to the slaughter, would be sacrificed, how he gave his cheeks to those that plucked the hair and that smote him on the face, how he answered not a word, how he was despised and we esteemed him not, and how he shed his life's blood. I looked into the Bible and I saw the Bible says very clearly that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. I saw that Jesus had several siblings and they are named in the Bible, Simon, James, Joseph, and Jude, and sisters, plural, at least two. I saw in the Bible that Mary brought forth her firstborn son and that there was a second and a third and a fourth and perhaps a fifth. I saw that he was a sibling of at least seven children. I saw that he owned at least one home. It's even stated in the Companion Bible and other sources where it said he was in the house. It says, at home, and in his house is implied. And you can see there were at least two homes, one in Nazareth and one up in Capernaum. 
Otherwise, you cannot explain the people actually taking a panel off of the roof and letting someone down and no one being there to stop them. You cannot explain either the miracle of changing water into wine unless that was a family member, for otherwise, why should Mary have had charge of the feast? Why should she have been the one to order the servants, do whatever he tells you to do? In the researching and the writing of that book called The Real Jesus, I went painstakingly chapter by chapter through his encounters with demons the healings that the Bible speaks of, of the real Jesus, as the book is entitled. A number of you may have read that book, and it shows the incredible opposites between the concept that you see in the mainstream fundamentalist Christian religion of today, of the Christ on the cross, of the little babe away in the manger in his mother's arms, of all of the other confusing and ridiculous assumptions that people hold about Jesus Christ, the biblical illiteracy that pervades the Western Christian world is pretty much complete. There are people with glandular, emotional, and very volatile opinions about the Bible, people with quotations out of the Bible. Well, I know it says something about this or that, and I know it's in there when it's not in there. Spare the rod and spoil a child. It's nowhere in the Bible. Those words are not in the Bible in that way at all. Many other old Bible quotations that aren't even there. For decades, I was teaching college classes, and I would begin having a little bit of fun, in a sense, with the first few chapters of the book of Matthew, and would come to the Sermon on the Mount, we would go right through, and we would deal with opposites of what people had grown up believing and always taken for granted and what the Bible really said. We would deal with a statement like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we would jokingly say, You don't want to be meek. The last thing in the world you want to do is be meek, because the meek get left behind on the earth and all the other people that aren't meek. Get to go to heaven, right? Wrong, like the country western song. Wrong. No, the Bible says very clearly that we shall reign on the earth in Revelation 5.10. In Revelation 24, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. In Revelation 3.21 and 2.26, to him that overcometh will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them, the nations of this earth. New Zealand, Iraq, does anybody need it worse than Iraq or Iran? He shall rule them with a rod of iron, even as I received of my father. The 11th chapter of Isaiah that describes a millennial picture of the reign of Jesus Christ, of animals and human beings, little babies and young children playing at the dens of poisonous snakes, little children cuddling up in the forepaws of a lion, Bears and lions nesting, resting, cuddling up together in the fields. Voracious, meat-eating animals being now more like a cow, eating herbs and grasses, very docile. And here is a picture that says they, including poisonous asps, lions, leopards, and other animals, shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. You can't read the 11th chapter of Isaiah and try to tell somebody that happens up in heaven. Are there lions in heaven? Are there apes in heaven? Rattlesnakes in heaven? Perish the thought. Where do some of these concepts come from? What is the true origin of the professing Christian religion? Where did the concept of Christ on a cross with a sort of beatific expression with long, cascading locks of brown hair, with aquiline nose and petulant thin lips, with one unsightly little piece of bit of blood dripping from the 
crown, the horn that may have pierced his forehead here, with a kind of a waxen white body with a little wound in the side. Where did all these concepts come from? The traditional pictures of Christ that adorn people's homes or even found in some Bibles. No photographer was there to take his picture. No artist ever sketched him. No sculptor ever sculpted his form or figure. There are dozens of different ideas going all the way back to the first, second, and third century, this side of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that depict a person hanging on a cross. And they are all different. So in seeking out the real origin, and in going to the eyewitnesses who knew him, who walked and ate and slept and talked and were there with him for three and a half years, I was going to the most reliable witnesses, not to people who lived in the third century, or the sixth, or the ninth, or the eleventh century, who know just exactly as much about it as we do, and had the same sources and apparently rejected them, but to the original sources about the real Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Believe it or not, and it's in the book, and you can find it in the Bible by reading the first chapter of the book of John, the Gospel of John, and together with it, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. The Jesus Christ of Nazareth of the New Testament, the one who is called the Lord Jesus Christ, is the God who dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That personage of the God family is the individual who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger and delivered them to Moses. That individual is the one who said, let there be light, and the black Stygian clouds were rolled away from an earth that was submerged under water. He is the being who appeared to Jacob and wrestled with him in the dust. He is the being who ate a meal with Abraham in the plain of Mamre just before sending two angels to deliver Lot. He is the individual who dealt with Israel to whom David prayed, who appeared to Moses and said, I am, you tell them I am that I am, who appeared to Israel as Jehovah, who is the Savior and Redeemer, as El Shaddai, as Jehovah Nissi, God, our shield, our protector, and our banner, as Yahweh, or Yahshua, or Jehovah Rophika, our healer, as the lawgiver, as the one who set down and laid down the laws, statutes, and the judgments of God. And yet in this world of Christianity, people have the concept of an unjust father God, sitting in his heavenly armchair who laid down laws that were so intricate, so difficult, so drab, dull, gray, uninteresting, so excruciatingly painful, self-denial, self-abstinence, laws that said, don't, 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 thou shalt not, thou shalt not, that it took a young man, Jesus Christ, to come along and do away with that old father God and do away with his laws. And so millions of Christians have the idea that Jesus, like a young carpenter, had a ladder and up there was a cross. And in his arm was a bunch of scrolls that represented Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and Judges, and all the rest of them. And he mounted this ladder to the cross, and he took those scrolls up there, and he pulled some nails out of his robe, and he nailed that old law up there to his cross. How many people believe Jesus nailed the law to the cross? Millions do. Jesus didn't nail anything to any cross. He wasn't even crucified on a cross. The Greek word sauro in your Bible, in the original language of the writers of the Gospels, sauro, saurus, 
means an upright pale, and is correctly translated in the book of Acts, tree. That there may have been a patibulum, that there may have been a small board nailed well above his head, is obvious because they put an inscription on it, but it was not a cross at all. The cross predates Christianity by thousands of years, and is anciently a solar wheel and a pagan symbol. How many Christians going to mainstream fundamentalist churches know that, that the very symbol of the so-called crucifixion, and the word crucifixion is an English word coming from a Latin word, and the Latin word crux, that means cross, has no more connection with the Greek word stauro, that means stake, than the word automobile and microphone. They just have no etymological derivation or connection or whatsoever. How many people know that? Look it up in Dr. Bullinger's Companion Bible sometime and see that the most commonly accepted Christian symbol is actually something that was added to the apostate Christian religion in the second and third century, and even antedates it as a symbol used by many pagan Gentile countries long before. As you research the real Jesus Christ, you ask, who was he before his human birth? Who and what was he when he came to this earth? How did he act? What did he teach? What were his concepts and precepts? What were his examples? What day of the week did he keep holy? What festivals did he observe? What was his custom? What was his practice? There is not one Catholic priest alive on the earth today. There is not one Protestant Sunday-keeping minister alive on the earth today, but who will not tell you cheerfully, Jesus kept the Sabbath. But do you know the way they put the twist on it? He did it to fulfill it. And when he fulfilled it, then we don't have to do it anymore. He changed it all. Let's get into this subject in a simple little bit of biblical research with our words, Christ our Passover, by asking, why did Jesus die? Now, the Apostle Paul said he died to save sinners. The signs on the barns and the roadside, uh, as I said, buses or the marquees of churches say, Jesus died to save sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote, Jesus died to save sinners, of whom or among whom I am chief. What is a sinner? What is sin? I'm going to turn to 1 John, the fourth chapter. or I should say the third chapter and the fourth verse, 1 John 3, 4. Here is the Bible definition, and there are several others, about what is sin. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. What law? Are we talking about some other law other than the word law that the Bible commonly uses for the commandments of God? Well, let's take a look in the first chapter of the first epistle of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, millions do. They say, isn't it nice to know the Lord this morning? Isn't it wonderful to have fellowship with the Lord? It's so lovely to know the Lord. The Lord spoke to my heart. The Lord told me this. I hear people on television saying the Lord talked to them. And I'm saying, you're lying. You didn't hear a voice. He didn't talk to you. It's just that a lot of people sort of spiritually, using a lot of spiritual salt and pepper and condiments of all kinds for seasoning and flavor and what they say, want their audiences to think that this guy kind of talks to God and God talks to him. They well, hey, Joe, George, Jim, yeah, I don't know how you can be talking to all these people at the same time, but sometimes they even say they saw a 36-foot Jesus standing at the foot of their bed. 
And they will even say that they, they even told a dog trainer to send them money or else he was going to take them home. I don't know why anybody would say, I don't want to go to heaven. But this one fellow didn't. Last thing in the world he wanted to do was have the Lord take him home. He wanted to stay here no matter what the cost. That is to other people. I don't know why someone would send me a letter or look at me on television and threaten me with his death. But I've seen that done by television preachers. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk, that is, live in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, and this is a metaphor, meaning righteously according to Christian principles, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Sin is what? The transgression of the law. What law? We shall see. If we say, and John is writing to Christians, mind you, not just to the unconverted or Gentiles of other races, if we, we who are Christians, he's writing to the church, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 119, 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. Righteousness is not something that is a mood. It is not just an attitude. It is not our concept as Americans or as fundamentalists in America, in the South, in the Bible Belt, of what is right and what is wrong. It is not for man to make up passing, changing codes, mores, restrictions, proscriptions, or laws, but for God to lay down his laws, and we decide either whether we will obey them or not. He does not allow us to decide what is righteousness and what is sin. He merely allows us to decide whether we will observe what he has set down, his laws. If we say that we have not sinned, what is sin? The breaking of God's law. Then if we say we have not broken God's law, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 2 of the next chapter. He, Christ, is the propitiation, that is, he is efficacious for the forgiveness of, adequate to the task of obliterating or wiping out or erasing our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him. Now think about all the people who say, isn't it nice to know the Lord? Do they do this? If we keep his commandments. Is that taught in the churches at large? No, it is not. There's lip service given to it. I've heard leading Protestant ministers talk about the commandments. And the only one with which they really take issue is one that some of us are here observing today and others are here as guests and don't necessarily observe it and are not yet convicted or convinced that they should. But the only one with which they take issue is the fourth. They don't take issue with the first, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They don't take issue with imagery, except some have excuses just why they got one on the dashboard, but they say that's not an image, I don't worship that, it merely stands for something, and they have their rationale. But they don't take issue with the fifth commandment, or with the seventh, or ninth, or tenth, and they believe that if they had a next-door neighbor that observed all those commandments, thou shalt not kill, actually it means thou shalt do no murder, the Hebrew word is rothsack, thou shalt do no murder, that it'd be wonderful to live with people like that, who wouldn't cheat, wouldn't steal, wouldn't covet. You happen to live in one of the highest crime cities on the face of this earth. There are more murders in Houston, Texas, than there are in England and all of Scandinavia in any given year. Did you know that? More people being shot to death in the streets of this big, sprawling city than there are in all of England 
all of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland put together every single year. A botch, isn't it? A blight on the surface of the earth. Just incredible the amount of crime there is. Oh, we'd love to live uh, next door to people who keep the commandments, except we wouldn't want them coming over telling us if we're getting our kids and our Sunday go to meet and close that we're going to church on the wrong day. The only one they take issue with is the forest, and they have their ways of getting around that one, or they try to. He that saith, in verse 4, I know him, I know the Lord. Isn't it nice to know the Lord today? And keepeth not his commandments is a liar. Wow, that's strong language. Not my language, is it? That's not Garner Ted 2, 4. That's First John 2, 4 of the Word of God. I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Over and over again, he talks about God's commandments. And he says that the very love of God, well, let's look at this in verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let's love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. The Greek word ganao, G-E-N-N-A-O, means to be conceived or begotten. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love, a cherished scripture that many people have memorized. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. As Paul wrote in the book of Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. We didn't get good enough to deserve anything. God's love, while we were so bad he could hardly stand to look at us, was so magnanimous and so limitless toward us that he gave his only begotten Son, and he died for us, in our case, while we were yet unborn, in the case of even those who put him to death while they were doing it to him, he died to save sinners, as Paul wrote, of whom I am chief. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. What is God's love? 1 John 5, 3, right across the page. God's definition of the love of God. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Question. When Almighty God proposed to Israel a series of laws, he laid them down, he said, here are some hazards and benefits. Here are some causes and effects. Here are some opposites, some blessings and some cursings. I'll relate them to you by reading a passage out of Deuteronomy 28. He said, all these blessings, if you will do all his commandments, says in verse 1, if you will hearken diligently to the voice of the eternal your God, and this is the very person who later became Jesus Christ, and you can prove it in your own Bible with nobody there to misinterpret it. You can simply read John, the first chapter, and believe every word it says. Read it slowly, read it carefully, understand it, and you will prove to yourself incontrovertibly, beyond the remotest shadow of a doubt, that what I'm telling you is true, the being of the God family of Elohim, that means more than one, which is why he said, let us make man in our image, who spoke these words to ancient Israel, was that individual who was born of the Virgin Mary and became Jesus Christ. If you will hearken diligently to the voice of the Eternal, your God, to observe and do all his commandments which I command you this day, that the Eternal, your God, will set you on high above all nations of the earth, 
And all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you if you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God. Question. Which one of the commandments is grievous, wrong, ugly, and bad? Thou shalt not steal. Is that a bad law or a good law to protect your property and that which you rightly deserve when you put in a hard day's work for a fair, honest day's pay? Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor. You shall not have other gods before the true God. Which one would you single out and say, that is a bad law? God's law, it says through David, is perfect, converting the soul. The law of God, he said, is my meditation all the day. The law of God is perfect. Wherefore, the commandment, wrote Paul, is perfect and holy and just and good. And he said, I myself therefore serve the law of God, but with the flesh, because the fleshly appetite, the law of sin. So there isn't such a thing as a bad commandment, is there? Except that a lot of people do go to church on Sunday. Now that's a little bit of a sticking point, but they think they've got a reason for that. All these churches can't be wrong. Well, how many Chinese are there? Well, they're in the majority. They represent a quarter of the human race. Far more than a billion of them. And their, their religion is basically the religion of Buddha. Some of it is Confucianism, some Taoism, and dozens of other derivatives of various ancestor worship, animism, and pagan oriental philosophies. And they're in the majority. Surely all those Chinese cannot be wrong, right? In other words, you believe in the majority, right? You all believe in the majority. If you can show a majority, you know the majority can't be wrong. All those Chinese cannot be wrong. We believe that, don't we? No, not a person sitting in this room believes that. You know better than that. You know that one billion people are wrong, or you wouldn't be sitting here listening to a person believing in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't have been attracted to that television program. You wouldn't want that literature. You wouldn't believe in the Bible as being the Word of God. So therefore, you don't really believe the majority is right. And you don't really have an argument in the back of your mind kicking around in there somewhere when you hear me say something about the Sabbath, surely all these churches can't be wrong. That's the same argument my dad came up with the day my mother showed him a Sabbath in the Word of God, because a neighbor lady had showed it to her, and she was subtle the way she did it. When my mother asked, why do you people observe the Sabbath on Saturday? Well, Loma, let me show you something. And she opened up the Bible and put her finger over here in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, where God created the Sabbath day and hallowed it and made it holy. And then she turned over to Exodus, the 16th, 18th, and 20th chapter, where God was actually penalizing people with the death penalty for going out and breaking his Sabbath law prior to Moses coming back with the Decalogue from the mount. And then she, she, she wouldn't say a word. She refused to comment. She merely turned the pages and put her finger there and said, read this. My mom read it. She turned to Exodus 31. My mom read that. She turned to Isaiah, the 56th chapter, the promise of salvation and walking on the high places of Jacob and the inheritance of the high places of the earth to the Gentiles and to the proselytes who will observe God's Sabbaths. She turned to Mark 2.27 and showed how the Jesus Christ of Nazareth is called the Lord of the Sabbath day. She turned to examples of the Apostle Paul who kept the Sabbath and taught Gentiles on the Sabbath. She turned to the fourth chapter of Hebrews and showed there remains, therefore, a keeping of the Sabbath to the people of God. She turned to the last chapter of the book of Revelation and showed 
Blessed are they that do his commandments, for they shall have a right to enter into the tree of life and to inherit eternal life. And by the time my mom was through reading it with no comment, no preacher there to expound or explain, nobody to say this doesn't mean what it says, she said, well, according to this, Mrs. Runcorn, the Sabbath is the day we're supposed to keep. And Mrs. Runcorn, my next door, my mother's next door neighbor before I was born, said, well, Loma, you said it. I didn't. My mom was so convicted that she couldn't wait to tell my dad. And my dad was so furious that, first of all, when he couldn't argue with her about all these churches can't be right, and every argument that everybody in this room has ever thought of a hundred times, he thought of long ago, 1927 or 8, whenever that was. Then he began to shout at her. That didn't do any good. Then he threatened to divorce her. She said, even if you divorce me, I won't give up the Sabbath. So then he went to the public library, and for about six months he said, I know there's a scripture in this Bible somewhere because all these huge churches with their spires and cathedrals and stained glass windows and 220 voice choirs and tens of thousands and in some cases three and five and seven million members can't be wrong. They can't all be worshiping on the wrong day, and I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm going to cram it down your throat. Six months later, he had the humbly, like a little puppy, cringing in from the rain, come to her and say, Loma, you were right, and I was wrong. And my dad had to give up all that vanity and all of his arguments and begin to obey God and to keep his Sabbath day. Which commandment is bad? You don't know of a one. But I'll guarantee you the Sunday go to meeting people and those Sunday keeping churches will really land on that Saturday-Sunday issue with both feet if you give them half a chance. Now, if you want to read a book that is the most detailed I've ever read by Samuele Bacchiocchi, and I don't have his address right here, but some few of you have written off and gotten a copy of that. He, by the way, is a Jesuit who wrote a book called Sabbath to Sunday that documents all the papal bulls, and if you don't know what that is, I'm not really making a joke. You'll have to look that up in literature, and encyclicals, and all the various councils, and so on, where the popes, beginning in the second and third centuries, actually, well, it wasn't a pope for that time anyway. The pope didn't come along until a lot later when they began to gradually argue over who was the pope. At one time, there were five of them. Another occasion, there were two of them busily excommunicating each other. The Roman Catholic Church, as we know it, wasn't really complete until about the 11th century, as a matter of fact. The Council of Whitby in 664 was still in argument over the Quarto Deciman controversy about Passover on the 14th, and there were still remnants of people all over Europe keeping the Sabbath, as there were in Glastonbury in England, clear in the 600s. But you have to look back in history and realize that it wasn't until 325 A.D., or three times longer than the United States of America has existed as a nation, that in the Council of Nicaea, the leader of that apostate church said, Christians shall no longer be found Judaizing by observing the seventh-day Sabbath, and commanded them to observe the day of the sun of Solus Invictus, the day named after the sun god. Back to our blessings and cursings of the 28th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. He said, All these blessings shall overtake you, if you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God. Now let's just apply it to Houston, Dallas, to New York and Los Angeles, to London or Rome. Blessed shall you be in the city. Aren't we blessed? Look at us. What are those keys in your purse or your pocket? Did you lock your car when you left it to come in here? Do you have a little peephole in your door? Do you have a deadbolt? Do you have the sign on the back of the door in the hotel that says, be sure to check your valuables at the desk or at least double lock and chain your door? I heard sirens going by this morning and wondered who'd been shot. 
blessed are you in the city. Our cities are jangled, smog-choked, confusing, chaotic, riotous mixtures of asphalt, broken glass, abandoned yards and automobiles, of, dr of junk and trash and refuse, of drug abuse, of divorced families, of illegitimate children, abused kids, of kidnappers, of murderers, serial killers, of crime of every kind, I mean deserted, abandoned old tenements, absentee landlords with people living in walk-up four-story brownstones in Detroit and the south side of Chicago and Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York City that just boggle your mind when you go through there and, and look at it, poverty pockets of people who live in despair, kids that sleep eight and ten to a little one-room apartment, rats nibbling on their noses and ears. If you look at the truth, I can take you to the downtown part of Houston and show you all the glittering buildings in three blocks from there. I can take a camera and take pictures of some of the ugliest things you can ever want to look at. Three blocks in the very shadow of some of the downtown buildings in Houston. And it's the same in every city of the United States from Pasadena, California to Pasadena, Texas. Blessed shall you be in the city. Do you know of any city to which that can be applied? I don't. I don't know of a city in the United States that you can say, that's a blessed city experiencing the blessings of God. Blessed shall you be in the field. We could be here for four hours before I would even begin to cover the subject of drought and famine and disease and stem rust and root rot and every one of the blights and diseases that attack crops of monoculture and all of its evils, of herbicides, pesticides, of all the various hydrocarbons and the various chemicals that are sprayed upon our fields that can continually leach into the soil and therefore into the rivers and bays and estuaries that pollute the shellfish that people shouldn't eat anyway, the bottom dwellers, that kill other fish. There used to be a time years ago when at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Ohio River they could take one vial of water in a 100-gallon tank, take that vial of water out of the river and put it in there with a bunch of trout and all the trout would die. I used to do programs on pollution in the United States. It just boggled my mind when I really looked at the fact that by the time the Mississippi River water got to New Orleans, about five people had already used it at least once. And looking at what used to be called the colon of America, the place where all of that trash and pesticides and herbicides that leach off thousands of farmers' fields find its way into the river and goes on out into the Gulf. If you talked about crops, you talk about pollutants that are sprayed on the fields, pollutants in the form of all sorts of artificial pesticides and chemical fertilizers that are sprayed on the crops, and then things that are put on the produce itself, including the wax and the preservatives to preserve their color and to give them long shelf life, and then you look at the curse of cancer. I once wrote a book, I read a book called Our Daily Poison, and it showed what processed cheese consisted of, for example. It's just a lot of chemicals. It's just a lot of rosins and gums. It has a little tiny percentage of what once used to be some of animal fat product called cheese, but it doesn't even resemble real cheese anymore. It's long since passed through a process with artificial flavoring, artificial coloring, and it is a horrifying substance. But that book, Our Daily Poison, merely dealt with all of the thousands of chemicals in our environment. We breathe it from the asbestos in our buildings. We breathe it from the stack, spewing it into the air. We're getting it from nuclear testing in the form of strontium-90, which is found in pack ice in Antarctica. There is no such thing as country air anywhere on the face of the whole Earth. If you're not aware of the ozone layer being disintegrated over the poles, you ought to read up on it. If you're not aware of the fact that as long ago as 30-some years ago, when Contiki made its way out of the Mediterranean, clear across the Atlantic Ocean of Belém, Brazil, not one day was Thor Heyerdahl 
ever out of sight of floating orange rinds, plastics, tins, cups, and bottles, and flotsam and jetsam of the sewage and the trash that all of mankind is spewing into our ocean. If you get started on pollution, and I get started on it, we're going to be here till next Tuesday, and I wouldn't have even touched the subject, and you know it and I know it. So as you look at this, it says, Blessed shall you be in the field. Just ask yourself, what do we have? Blessings? No. Well, then the next question is, why? Why don't we have blessings? Why, instead, do we have cursings? Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. How long could I go on about child diseases, abortion, deformities. The doctor that says, don't worry about it, to the young wife, you know, we're supposed doctors are like God, aren't they? They're there with the stethoscope and the white gown, they advertise, more doctors use this. Oh, I've got to buy that product, the doctors use it. Yes, doctor, doctor, save me. Doctor so-and-so, oh, it's wonderful to be a doctor. So they pat them on the head, don't worry, the thalidomide is a safe drug. Why, you're all nervous and distraught, just take this thalidomide. So there are people walking around, I see them every now and then. Their arm just developed to there and stopped. I knew of a little child that had one little bitty finger poking out of a kind of a club-like thing. It was supposed to be a hand. On the other hand is a thumb, born to one of our ministers in the parent church. There were thalidomide babies all over the country, and tens of thousands of young, unsuspecting pregnant women who were put down by doctors who told them, thalidomide is safe. Why, they tell you that thousands of chemicals are safe. And look what it's doing to unborn generations. There are kids born today with cocaine withdrawal. Kids are born today on crack and heroin. Kids are born today because parents were smoking or ingesting alcohol or other dangerous drugs, and they're having withdrawal symptoms the minute they draw their first breath. It says here, Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. And I better not belabor all of these or I'll be here all day. And the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. Blessed will be your basket and your store, your natural resources, your raw materials, your national reserves. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Eternal will cause you, your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Eternal will command blessing upon you in your storehouses, in all that you set your hand to do. And he shall bless you in the land which the eternal your God gives you. Why? Because you obey his laws. Did you know he has laws involving agriculture? You know they're written in the first five books of the Bible? You know that every seven years man ought to put back into the soil what he's taken out and let it rest? Do you know that there are laws that involve marriage, landmarks, inheritances, animals, dangerous pets, laws that involve every nuance of human behavior, man to man, family to family, husband to wife, parent to child, throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Laws that would regulate society, and believe it or not, they are automatic. You break them, they break you. You don't just break these physical laws that God has himself set in motion, and then God sit up there and look for somebody breaking a law and say, I'm going to get him because he broke my law. That's not the way it works. He has set it in motion. What's keeping you on this earth right now, we won't tell those people 8,000 miles right straight through from there, 8,000 miles, I don't know where you're sitting, 8,000 miles, there are people sitting the other side up. And those people think they're on the top of the earth. They think they're right side up. We know better. They're upside down, right? The water down there 8,000 miles is not dropping off into space, is it? What is that law? Do you know it? I know Newton defined it, but Newton didn't invent it just because an apple hit him on the head. 
That is a law, and you can't break it. Lie down on your side sometime and look in a mirror. It's even affecting your cheeks. The older you get, the truer that is. Gravity pulls your face down a certain way. You lie on your side, it pulls the other way. It looks really weird. Your old face kind of goes over to one side, sags over there. The reason we sag here and there is because of what's called gravity. We say we weigh so much. We don't say it's pulling me by so much, or it's got me fixed to the earth by so much and such a scale, or so many stone or pounds. We talk about gravity. What is gravity? Science doesn't know. It just knows it's there. What is the law of governing falling bodies? What is the law of inertia? Why is it when you're going in a car that you can drop a marble and the marble will be going the same speed as the car is? What causes that? What are the laws of physics and chemistry and science, the laws of the refraction, reflection, and diffusion of light, the laws of the cleavage properties of minerals and mineralogy and the forming of minerals that are exactly the same in empty, weightless space as they are on the earth? The laws that cause quartz to form exactly as it does. The law that says you can take a cube of perhaps orthoclase feldspar, meaning right angle clays or right angle cleavage feldspar, one of the commonest minerals on the earth, commonest kinds of rocks that makes up a part of gneiss or granite. And you can take that big cube, maybe weighing five or six pounds, and smash it into ten billion little pieces of smallest powder. And look at each piece of powder, and it's in a perfect cube. Why? Why can't you break it? You can't. You can't smash it in the smallest particle to where it isn't cube-like. Why does halite form the way it does? Why do crystals grow the way they do? And why are we male and female? And which came first, the chicken or the egg? God Almighty set down laws, and those laws are active, and they are like a powerful force, and they work upon us, and we, when we break them, they break us. Now, he went on to say, he will establish you in holy people unto himself. And he gave all of these wondrous blessings, he said in verse 12, the eternal will open unto you your, his good treasure, the heaven to give rain unto your land in his season, and to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend unto many nations, and you shall not borrow. The United States is the biggest, better nation in the history of the world. Every American now must work one month of the working class from 25 to 44 just to pay the interest on the debt we owe the Japanese. We are a nation that has sold our future and that of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now, if you're looking at all of the programs President Bush is trying to cancel, including government-sponsored experiments involving growing minks, and you look at the tens of thousands of dollars of pork barrel things the Democrats have put into that budget, and then you hear all this falter all about, you know, various people running for president with all the egocentric people who want to be in the White House, no matter what they've got to say to the American public. If Pat Buchanan could get in, we'd be three months away from war with Japan. But you look at some of these people, and as I've said for many, many years, if I ever find a candidate that's got the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, and the brain of Henry Kissinger, I'll probably vote for him. But until that time, I'm staying completely out of politics. I won't vote for any of those people at all, because it's not a one of them good enough together in this country, nor all of them put together. It's ungovernable, in my opinion. He said, He will give unto you his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend unto many nations, and you shall not borrow. And instead, we're getting every one of the curses that he delineates in the latter half of this chapter. So he goes on to say, it will come to pass, if you will not hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God. Question. Have we as a nation been busily 
hearkening to the voice of God? Are we obedient to God? Do we keep his laws? In my booklet, The Ten Commandments, if we don't have copies here that you could have, you can certainly get a free copy. I take each one of the commandments and I simply go right on out and extrapolate into human behavior of what our country would be like if our country kept just this one. Can you imagine what the country would be like if the one, thou shalt not steal? Now we'd start with Congress, wouldn't we? We'd start with Congress, thou shalt not kite checks. You and I do that, we're in trouble, our credit's ruined, we go to jail probably. Congress does it, no big deal. Uh, they just, they, there was a sign I saw in the Houston Post this morning. Some guy up in Pittsburgh put a sign out in front of his heating and air conditioning business. Congressional checks are not honored here. He wasn't going to accept any of them. Well, you know, if nobody stole, I mean, look at the stock market. Look at all the financiers. Look at corporate raiders who put together all kinds of deals, sell off a lot of subsidiaries, completely reconfigure great big companies, move a lot of papers around, make millions of dollars when they have not so much as fashioned a new wood screw, a new wire uh, nail. They haven't made a hammer or a mallet. Produced a rim for a wheel of an automobile. They have produced nothing. They have accomplished nothing. But by shuffling some corporations around, they probably end up putting thousands of people out of work and made for themselves, the Milkins and people like this, millions upon millions of dollars. That is our financial system in this country. You look into the health care uh, scandals, the people actually being, well, it's just too much of a subject to even begin to get into. I mean, I just would run out of breath before I could tell you of my outrage when I read all of this material of people who are actually just milking you. I'll just give you an example right quick. There's a young guy age 29 in Tyler, Texas, building in one of the most exclusive country clubs there, a 6,000 square foot, two and one half story home. He's 29 years of age. He drives a BMW. He is a pharmaceutical salesman. What's it cost you to go buy drugs or medicines if the doctor has you on something that you and he think you need? Sometimes 90, 70, 80, 50, 100 dollars for a little bitty bottle of a few little pink pills in there to keep people out of pain. Remember, this young guy, 29, not even 30 years of age, is merely making the commission from big pharmaceutical and chemical companies that he is selling these bottles to these pharmacists and doctors and hospitals and so on, and he's able to live in a style that nobody in this room will ever probably be able to achieve. Unbelievable. Well, it's another subject. All right, he says, here are the cursings that are going to come. It'll come to pass, if you will not hearken unto the voice of the eternal thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now think, as you read this tremendous list of the curses we would experience, how accurate it is. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket in your store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land, the increase of your kind and the flocks of your sheep. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Eternal will send upon you cursing, vexation, and rebuke in everything you set your hand to do until you be destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings whereby you have forsaken me. That happened generation after generation after generation. The kings of Israel would come along, 
would throw away God's Sabbath, would abolish his holy days, change it to the eighth month, as Jeroboam did. They would begin to set up idols and worship Baal, and God would send armies. And I mean the horrifying armies, the, the suffering of those people, of the populaces that were put to death and the way it happened. Josephus writing about the fact that Jerusalem was lit up in 71 A.D. So you can see, just like modern lights, I suppose, by the tens of thousands of Jews, they had actually impaled on upright stakes, smeared their bodies with bitumen, and set them afire while they yet lived. What the Romans did to the Jewish population during that time is as inhumane and as bestial and as unthinkable as anything Hitler ever did. And it's happened generation after generation after generation as those generations, each in their turn, refused to obey God's laws. You happen to live in a country that has a gigantic facade that is called Christian, that talks Christianity, that talks about Christ, that does lip service to Christ, but will not obey him. They want to appropriate him. They want to accept him. They want to love him. They want him to love them. They want to believe in him. But like a little household God you have over in the corner, a little God over there, you put him over the corner, and when you're in desperate trouble and your daughter is pregnant and you don't know who the father was, or your son comes home and says, i got to tell you the truth, Mom, I'm gay. Or somebody says, I don't know, but I've got HIV positive. Some of these horrifying situations happening in families. Then you want to get that little household God bring him over there. How could you let this happen to me, Lord? Why me, Lord? Oh, God, where are you when I need you? I wrote a book by that subject because people ask that question so often. They want a God of convenience, a God to get them out of trouble when they're in trouble. But day in, day out, they don't want that God sticking his nose into their daily lives, into the way they live, into the fulfillment of their desires and the satiation of their human physical appetites. They don't want God telling them as they reach in their shirt pocket for a cigarette, it's going to kill them. And they certainly don't want some invisible or invisible unseen hand grabbing them and forcing them not to light that cigarette. They don't want God clapping a hand over their mouth the next time they try to cuss. They don't want God interfering with the television reception or they turn to an R-rated movie. They don't want God stopping them from looking at the centerfold of a magazine. They don't want God, in short, interfering with their day-to-day -day exercise of their own liberties and their own free moral agency. They only want God when it's an emergency. They want God to keep them out of trouble. They want to live the way they want to live, and they want God to change his laws so that that way of life will be fine. You won't have any cuts and kicks and curses and bruises and hangovers and aftermath. In other words, you'd like to drink all the alcohol in sight but not have a hangover. You'd like to hate somebody, maybe even stab him a little bit, but, you know, not have to pay the penalty for murder. The way people live their lives in this nation of ours that professes Christianity and yet is not Christian the way Almighty God shows is an unbelievable travesty. I'm going to turn to the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah right quickly. Isaiah 53, where we read a little bit about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says, verse 3, he is despised, and this is talking about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice who was depicted here as growing up as a tender plant and when we shall see him, it says in verse 2, and I make much of this in the book called The Real Jesus, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Christ, as you know, disappeared in crowds. He was anonymous. He was average. He was an everyday-looking Jew of the tribe of Judah. 
of the seed of Jesse and David. His lineage is in the Bible. It is evident, said Paul in Hebrews, that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe the Bible said nothing concerning priesthood. And as the woman of Samaria said at the well, How is it thou, being a Jew, speak with me, a woman who am a Samaritan, or is a Samaritan, with whom the Jews have no dealings? He is despised and rejected of men. The people back there didn't say, This is Jesus, let's kill him. They hated him. As Christ said, the time is going to come when his people will be murdered and those that put them to death will think they do God a service. So the people who murdered Jesus thought they were getting rid of one of the most wretched crooks, one of the worst human beings they'd ever known. They thought they were killing an upstart, a would-be king. Maybe some few of those Pharisees were convicted and knew better, but the bulk of them were just a part of a mob that were convinced by a lot of propaganda and didn't really know what they were doing. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'd like you, if you're one of those that has not been able to attend meetings where I've been in person before, maybe you haven't listened to the telecast that long, if you've got a pen, you can take a note. Please write for a full-length sermon entitled, Christ's Lonely Sacrifice and get that tape of a full sermon that deals with these things, because I think you'll be amazed. A lot of people think, and the essence of that sermon is certainly cogent to what I'm talking about here today, that Jesus lived this life, and he came along to that moment when he was about 33 and a half years of age, and for a few hours after Judas came and betrayed him, and they dragged him back and forth to the court of Caiaphas, and to the high priest's home, and out to the Gabbatha plain, and then finally dragging his stake through the streets to Golgotha, that Christ did indeed suffer. And that is his sacrifice. A lifetime and then a few hours, less than 24, maybe 17 hours of suffering. And those hours represent Christ's sacrifice. When he was beaten and when he shed his blood. No. His entire lifetime of rejection, of being despised, of being put down by his own family. He said a prophet hath no honor in his own home, among his own kin, in his own country. The lack of respect, the denigration, the rejection. Is there any emotion that you have more trouble dealing with than rejection from someone you love? Is there anything more traumatic than divorce? When two people who once said they did and thought they'd found everything they wanted in each other now say they, they don't, and they don't like each other any anymore. And a lot of divorces, and some with which I'm very intimately and personally acquainted, devolve into absolute hatred and just wretched, ongoing, year after year, despicable treatment of each other and hatred and sparks flying and just contention and anger continually. And yet once upon a time, here was little Miss, you know, Good and little Mr. Prince Charming, and they loved each other and all the excitement and the the sensuality and the expectancy and all the dreams come true and she was getting the boy she cried into her pillow about and he's getting the girl of his dreams and they're going to ride off into the sunset. I mean, every movie they ever saw, every book, every, every Harlequin romance novel comes true. I got him, he's mine. I've got her, she's mine. A few years later, they hate each other. How does that happen? And how does it feel? It hurts to the marrow of the bone. Rejection is what Jesus suffered. It says, he was acquainted with grief. I'll tell you what, 
When you have grief and you have agony in your family and you get the letters that we get continually, a grandmother with maybe three kids on drugs, we, we got a letter here a few weeks ago that told us of a little baby. I think that little baby girl was under 10. I forget. Bronson might remember, but it was probably about five or six. Left unattended, on a bed, in a home of many rooms where there was a big drunken party going on. That little child was put in there to go to sleep. They came in and found that child dead from rape. We got the letter from the grandmother of that child. That's the world we live in. That's called sin. That's what sin is. It's the breaking of God's law. Christ was acquainted with grief. So was that grandmother. So was that mother and father of that little girl. And so eventually will be the person who did that unspeakable deed. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. Why would you despise Christ? The whole Christian religion says love Christ. We ought to love Christ. We ought to receive him and accept him and love him. But during his lifetime when he was on this earth, he was despised. Now let me tell you something. You put this down and believe it because it's true. If he were to come back today to Houston, Texas, and get a job as a humble carpenter, they would kill him all over again. He would be despised. He could come and preach the truth of God to people who think they are Christians, and he would be despised. That's the shocker, because he would tell them to obey God, and it's awful hard to get away with doing that to most congregations these days. He would be despised, and they would do it all over again. We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That means our sins, our infractions, our disobediences of God's law. He was bruised for our iniquities. We like to think they killed Christ. No, I, you, we killed Christ. Our sins cost his life. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We are all like sheep, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Truer words were never spoken or written. And the Eternal has laid on him the sin, the iniquity, of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Remember that Pilate and the others were amazed at him because they had suborned witnesses. They'd paid them to lie. And one after another, they paraded in front of him and accused him of saying he was going to destroy the temple, accused him of all kind of unspeakable acts, maybe even some of them sexual or immoral in nature, and he answered them not a word. They knew it was a farce. He knew it was a farce. They knew, he knew it was a farce. And he would not dignify that wretched farce with a single word in his own defense. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Christ our Passover. What's the Passover? Twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus shows 
They were to take a lamb and keep it until the 14th at even, and they were to kill the lamb and take the blood and paint it on the doorposts and lintels of the homes in which they dwelt. And abroad was the death angel, the harbinger of death that symbolized God's wrath upon all of sinning mankind that was going to take the lives of the firstborn, whether they were 88, 18, or 8 weeks, of all of the Egyptian families. Only the angel would not kill a single person inside a home where that blood was on the doors or the windows. He would pass over that home, pass by, skip over, skip it, forget it. That's what the Passover means. It's skip it, forget it day. Christ our, well, skip it, forget it. You're not guilty of sin anymore. Therefore, you're not under the death penalty anymore. Therefore, you don't have to pay that penalty. Now, don't misunderstand. It is given to all men to die once, the Bible says, after this, the judgment. We're human and physical, and our physical metabolic organism is finally going to run out of gas. Our vital organs aren't going to work anymore someday. I don't care whether you're perfectly healthy, and I don't care whether you smoke 14 cigars a day, like old George, uh, what's his name, that says he looks in the obituary to find out whether he's died the day before, and then gets up and can face the day. But... Nevertheless, that just proves how much some people can abuse the human physical body. Most of you, you and I couldn't get away with that number of cigars a day. But the final time is going to come where through some cause, whether natural or unnatural, we are going to die. That isn't the penalty for sin. The penalty of sin, I have to tell you, is to burn to death. The penalty for sin is to be consumed by Gehenna fire. Jesus Christ said, don't fear a man who after he's killed the body can't do any more, but fear Almighty God, who after he has destroyed the human physical body can destroy the spirit. Most people call it the soul. The Greek word suke means the human spirit. And if you understand it, it means the new creature in Christ. If you somehow abort spiritually and reject God's word, but can kill or totally destroy that life, which is called in the Bible the second death. The 16th chapter of the book of Luke that shows Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man seeing a wall of flame approaching, is a picture of Gehenna fire. And Almighty God says, and Jesus warned the Pharisees, that those who were committing the unpardonable sin were in danger of what he called Gehenna fire, or the fire of Gehenna. It's called the unquenchable fire, because it's going to completely consume that upon which it feeds. I know of no more horrible way to die than the agony of dying by being burnt to death being thrown into a fire and burnt up until I am no more. The wages of sin is death. Sin is the transgression of the law. The law includes the fourth commandment. In the 19th chapter of the book of Matthew, I will turn to that to conclude here quickly. I've kept you a long time. Matthew 19, a young nobleman came to Jesus Christ and he asked that age-old question, that all evangelists would hope their audiences would ask, that Dr. Billy Graham and so many people would like to get others in their audience to say, what must I do? Tell me, Dr. Graham. Tell me, Dr. So-and-so. Tell me, Mr. Minister. What good thing can I do? How can I change my life? What can I do? I want to be saved. I want to get rid of sin. I want to break the drug habit. I want to break the smoking habit. I want a better marriage. I want to find a job. I want to be healed physically. I want to get my finances straightened out. I want to get rid of my bad habits. I want to quit cussing. I want to quit lying. I want my husband back. I want my wife back. I want to straighten out my life. My life is wretched and unhappy. I want to make it right. What good thing can I do? 
Well, a young man came and asked Jesus that question. Verse 16. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I want to live forever. What good thing can I do? He said unto him, Why do you call me good? A relative expression, because he was still fleshly and human. There is none good but God in the sense of being absolutely perfect, because Christ was yet physical, though you and I would certainly have also called him good. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, which, now come those who will argue that since he did not delineate every last one of the ten, apparently you don't have to keep the ones he left out. But he said, thou shalt do no murder. Why start with that one? Does that mean you don't have to keep the one that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Does it mean it's okay to covet? Does it mean it's all right to dishonor your parents? Does it mean it's all right to worship idols? No one is going to argue that, but they will try to argue against God's Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so if Jesus said elsewhere, the two great commandments, which really summarize the first four and the last six, are thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's showering an awful lot of love on your neighbor. And by extension, who is your neighbor? He is every other human being. He's every Japanese, every Iraqi, every Arab, every black, yellow, and white. Or as I used to say, purple, polka dotted, or whatever color in between. It makes no difference because God has made of one blood all of mankind to dwell upon this earth. I have asked audiences, as I've talked to them all over the country, to actually practice a little bit of that, to walk up to people of a different race, of a different color, and to get to know them and ask about their lives. I don't know how many people ever do that. Instead, they exist in cities where other people, even around the block, down the block, around the corner, across the street, are complete strangers, total strangers. They don't even speak when they walk by in the street or in a supermarket. They just go their own way and look down because of the society in which we live. Here is the law of God, the Ten Commandments of God. Almighty God says we are to keep the commandments. Jesus Christ of Nazareth says we are to keep the commandments. Now, when God proposed the Old Covenant, he gave temporary, temporal, physical promises of physical blessings for a physical lifetime. But he said, the time comes and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not after the covenant I made with them, but I will write my law in their hearts and in their inward parts. Jesus Christ of Nazareth came along and lifted the Ten Commandments of God to a high spiritual plane, making them infinitely more binding on human behavior than the literal Ten Commandments according to the letter. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, You have heard it said of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, He that is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment. If you have hatred in your heart, if you have contempt toward a human being and say, why, you empty-headed, vain fool, you're of no worth, of no value. And what is the attitude of most human beings toward most other human beings in our society today? It is utter contempt. In the freeways in Los Angeles last year, there were people who in a flurry of all kinds of murders were carrying arms in their cars because someone, sometime or another, got 
furious because someone either was going too slow or cut in front of them and they pulled out a rifle and actually started shooting and many people died over a span of a couple of months on Los Angeles freeways that shows you the hatred and the anger and the complete disregard and the contempt of one human being toward any other human being just because they don't know them. They're strangers, so they don't care. That's why people go roaring by the site of an accident. That's why Kitty Genovese, who was stabbed over 27 times in a parking lot below her own apartment, with the lights on and people looking out the window, could get no one to come to her aid, piteously screaming while her attacker stabbed her again and again and again, left and then came back and stabbed her to death. Oh, I didn't want to get involved. Said the woman in Las Vegas when the police said there was a shooting right outside your door the other day. You heard the gunshots, didn't you? Yes, I did. Well, why didn't you come to the door? Well, I was in watching my favorite uh, television program. What was that? Gun smoke. It's true. It happened. It was on a police record. That's exactly what her answer was. She was watching her favorite show, Gunsmoke, and a murder took place right out there on the curb by her front yard. She didn't want to watch the real one. She wanted to watch the actors dying. The attitude of people. You ask yourself as you look at all these curses and blessings, and you look at what I've given you today about Christ our Passover, are we a God-fearing, law-abiding people? As a nation, no, we are not. We're the antithesis of that. We show our contempt for God. We trample his laws underfoot. People have excuses for disobeying God's Sabbath, his holy Sabbath day that he blessed and said we will be blessed if we keep it. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth died because we have broken those laws. Many years ago, my dad used to tell a story about my brother Dick that I'll pass on to you. He was out in the backyard as a little boy. And a little kid there had cursed and taken God's name in vain. And my brother didn't know what I told you about the cross, so he picked up two sticks and put them together. And he said, you see these two sticks? He said, this represents the cross. And he said, Jesus Christ died on that cross because you've been saying those horrible words. That's how come he died. So don't you say those horrible words anymore. He had it right. Christ died to save sinners, not in their sins, or to perpetuate them in their sins, but to save them from their sins, and says, when we are converted, go and sin no more. Repentance and conversion means to receive and accept Jesus Christ emotionally, as well as intellectually. It means to be deeply broken up over the way we have lived our lives, over the fact we have disobeyed God and broken his commandments, it also means you've got to come to the place, the point in time, and few people ever seem to achieve that, where you finally will come to understand what James wrote. If you break one point of God's ten commandments, you are guilty of breaking them all. And only when people come to understand that Sabbath breaking is on a par with murder in God's holy, righteous sight will they ever get rid of their arguments I begin to say it's time to surrender to God to give up this fight of resistance and argument and dodging around and dodging behind all of the mainstream, fundamental, evangelical Christianity. Surely they can't all be wrong. There's got to be an excuse somewhere so I don't have to go and keep Saturday for Sunday. God's Sabbath day is a part of his holy law. And Jesus Christ died because people have been breaking it. And when you repent and receive and accept Christ, who is called the Lord of the Sabbath day, 
and is the one who wrote that law, of whom it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, of whom it says, I changed not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, of who writes in the book of Revelation, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have a right to enter into the tree, the city, to take the tree of life and to live for all eternity. Only when you understand Jesus Christ of Nazareth demands your obedience as well as your emotion, your tears, that you quit sinning. You begin to obey God's law. Will you truly understand what it means to be a Christian? Shocking words. Many people wouldn't sit still for it. I've had people get up and walk out of audiences hearing me talk about God's law before and talking about the Sabbath day because they simply cannot stand to hear the truth. And as I said one time when I was talking about the great false church depicted in the 17th chapter of Revelation and talking about the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and the number of his name, one of these days I'm going to get around to really telling it like it is and preaching a strong sermon. And I got a few chuckles out of the audience because I had just named the great false church exactly what it was, and I think a lot of them were wondering who was going to come crashing in here and attack this guy for daring to speak this way. Well, I want to thank all of you for coming out today to take your time to come down here. I'm God bless you all, and thank you for coming.